Okay, let's, let's read the scripture. Um, this is from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25. As you're turning there, that, I, I love this passage of scripture. I'm looking forward to hearing from it, what God's going to speak to me about. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, um, Just I just pray that you would remove every distraction and that you would speak to us. Lord, empower Justin to speak your word boldly. Um, and I just um, thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in each of us. Just have your way in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who know me, um, I am an avid student of the Puritans. I like to read Puritan books. Um, that doesn't make me puritanical. It just makes me like the Puritans. And so uh, one of the things I like about the Puritans is they used to speak of the Christian life as the school of Christ. For them, there was no analogy more appropriate. They believe that as sinners separated from God, we are thoroughly uneducated in the ways of God, of righteousness, of holiness, and yet, when we believe in Jesus, we are enrolled in an entirely new way of living, thinking, speaking, and doing life. Christ is the perfect teacher who teaches his people how to think, how to pray, how to speak, how to love. Disciples are his students who know they depend upon their teacher to grow in wisdom and insight of the gospel. And all of life is the classroom in which we learn how to apply the lessons that we learn, in which we learn how to quiet ourselves to listen to our teacher's voice. So I I find it's a great analogy with them, just reading that and thinking about life as the school of Christ, that the Christian walk is the school of Christ. It's back to school weekend. We're sending our kids back to school. So I thought, why not kick off with that analogy? The idea of a disciple being a student is deeply embedded in the New Testament's description of discipleship. Whenever you see Jesus calling a person to be a disciple, his fundamental imperative is simply this, follow me, which comes with all kinds of prerequisite postures. For example, a posture that wants to humbly follow the leader, not someone who's going to fight ahead and try to be the leader, but someone who wants to follow Jesus recognizes that he is one to be followed and that we are the ones who should follow. It's a call to acknowledge and submit to his leadership, his authority, and his wisdom. It takes an immense amount of humility to be a student. It requires us to understand and to know that we have something to learn. 
It requires us to understand and know that there are things that we cannot see on our own, truths that we cannot understand with our own type of thinking, that we need to be instructed in the ways of God, which are far above our own natural comprehension. As students of Jesus, as disciples of Christ, we humbly come to Jesus asking him to teach us the things that we cannot learn on our own. Now, this truth is seen in the words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, in which we'll see the glimpse of our teacher's heart, just the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's like and how he wants to be approached by us, how he wants us to come and learn from him how accessible he is. We get to hear his invitation and we'll be shown the kind of posture that is needed as disciples of Christ in learning from Jesus. Now, Matthew 11 is important because in addition to teaching us about following Christ, it also gives us insight into the greater redemptive work of God. Namely, this passage of Scripture ties into the greater theme that we see throughout all Scripture of reversal. You know, that theme of the high become low and the low become high. This exaltation of the humble and the de-elevation, the, the uh, humbling of the proud. It falls into this greater theme of reversal. One of the most encouraging, most often quoted passages of Scripture in which Jesus says, Come to me, for I am gentle, is in the context of judgment. I find that interesting. That in the greater context, one of the most sweetest, most inviting, most welcoming passages in all of Scripture is right after a series of woes given to Chorazin, given to Bethsaida, given to Capernaum, who all witnessed the power of God and His mighty works, and yet still they refused to repent and believe. For all their wisdom, they had no knowledge. For all their sight, they were unable to see Jesus for who He really is. Now, the reason for the lack of sight is given in Jesus' prayer in verses 25 through 26. If you want to look there with me, this is where our passage begins. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, according to Jesus, the reason why people like the Pharisees of Capernaum, these religious elite who had all this knowledge of the Old Testament, who had deep insights into the old promises of God, the reason they could not see the truth is that God had not revealed it to them. Now, why? Why would God hide the truth from anyone? Why not reveal the truth to everyone? Why not forever silence the Pharisees bickering and their doubts and their casting questions upon Jesus' identity. Why not open all of their eyes? Well, we're not given the answer to that question in this passage. Other scriptures simply say that God gives mercy to whom he gives mercy. That he, he pours out mercy on those whom he sovereignly wills. Other than that, we have no explanation, no logic, no philosophy, no human wisdom can explain why God chooses to reveal the truth to some and why he hides the truth from others. All we know behind Israel's rejection is that God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, what does that teach us about the knowledge of God? I think first... 
Matthew 11 shows us that God's revelation is a matter of God's sovereignty. Very simply, he reveals himself according to his own sovereign will. Sovereignty is such a majestic term. The fact that God is sovereign and the fact that he reveals himself according to his own sovereign will, to me, is actually a refreshing truth. It doesn't deny human responsibility. In fact, in the next few verses, Jesus gives an invitation to all who labor and are heavy laden. So sovereignty doesn't negate responsibility to come to him. They, they are held in tension. Humans are responsible to heed the call. And yet... Jesus fully acknowledges, knowing that humanity is responsible to come to him, fully acknowledges that God is completely sovereign over his own revelation. We know God because God wants us to know him. We know God because God wants to be known by us. His sovereign will, the fact that we know God, the fact that we can call him intimately Father, happens only because he sovereignly willed it. If he chose, he could hide himself forever from mankind. But because God desired it, God has chosen to make himself known. Second, it reminds us that we are absolutely dependent on God when it comes to knowing God. The first truth reveals a truth about God. He's sovereign. The second truth reveals the truth about man. We're dependent. Whereas God is infinitely sovereign, man is not. It is not by our human wisdom, not by our logic, not by our gifting, not by our intellect. It doesn't matter what your ACT score was. It doesn't matter what your GPA was. It doesn't matter what uh, what level of intelligence you think you are. You simply cannot come to a knowledge of God on your own. He's too high. Too infinite, too above our wisdom to understand. No one seeks after God. No one understands Him. God's ways are higher than our ways. These are are scriptures that all remind us that, that God is far beyond our own natural ability. Try as we might, we can never know God on our own. Now, to be sure, there's ways that we know about God. Scripture speaks of a general revelation, right? Something that everybody can see. Uh, you take Romans one nineteen through 20, for example, for what can be known about God, that's different from knowing God, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, you hear, you hear certain things about this general revelation. Everybody on earth can tell from the sunsets, from the ocean, from the whale sharks that swim in the Caribbean. I think that's where they, do they swim there? Uh, they may not swim there. I may be swimming in the wrong place to see whale sharks. Um, uh, everything that is on earth can reveal the truth that God is the eternal creator. He's immensely powerful. You look at the Himalayans, you look at the, the, the sunrises. Um, we used to climb mountains in China and just seeing the view, just this awestruck, breathtaking view that Wow, God made that. God is eternal. God is big. God is great. Every human on earth can see that naturally from general revelation. Now, knowing truths about God is completely different than knowing God. Though generally everyone can know things about God, only those that God graciously gives knowledge to can actually know Him. 
We know God because we are dependent on God to give us knowledge of himself, to make us know him in an intimate way, to have a relationship with him because we are so dependent on him. It's just a a humbling reality when you realize just for a moment that this God that you have followed all your life You know him. You have a relationship with him. You love him. You adore him because he has brought you to that point. It sets a posture, doesn't it, for the rest of life? It sets a posture of dependence. God, help me to love you more. God, it it, it gives you a starting point, a, a, a platform to spring off of. That if you want to love God more, your starting point is not to try harder. It's not to mumble to yourself, love God more. It's not to beat yourself. It's not self-flagellation of where you're whipping yourself into submission. The starting point of knowing God better is God. And coming to Him in dependence and asking Him to bring you into an even deeper knowledge of Himself. So number one, knowledge of God depends on God's sovereign will. Number two, we are dependent on this sovereign God, to know God. And then number three, this is the third thing it teaches us. God reveals himself to the weak. To the weak. Now, guilty sinners don't deserve to know God. We know that. What is surprising is not that God has revealed himself to some, and not everyone. What is actually surprising is that God has revealed himself to anyone. What is even more surprising is who God chose to reveal himself to. Now, if I'm thinking in my own natural faculties and just thinking in the way that I would do it, I would make sure that the elite get knowledge of me. I mean, they have worked all their lives. They have studied hard. They have learned the Hebrew scriptures. We're gonna, I'm going to reveal myself to the Pharisees, to the priests. They earned it. They deserve it. They're, they're the smartest people around. They're the holiest people around. They're walking around as the elite of society. So that's who I'm going to reveal myself to. And yet, God surprises all of us by not revealing himself to the strong, not to the smart, not to the wise, not to the understanding, not to the self-sufficient. God reveals himself, you ready for this? To infants. That's the word little children. The, the author uh, here in Matthew, Matthew wants us to understand it's not just little children, right? Not just these toddlers that are... These are infants, like, like nursing babies, helpless, dependent, can't speak on their own, can't take care of themselves, can't even move from place to place without help. That's the idea of the word that is used there. God reveals himself to infants, not to spiritual sages, but to spiritual babies. Now that's amazing. And it it also helps us to understand that if if we do have knowledge of God, it's not because God somehow saw how smart we were or how capable we were. It was actually because God saw how helpless we were. That's the reason we've received the knowledge of God. I mean, we see Jesus' crowd that's around him, and we see it filled with fishermen and outcasts and lepers and Samaritan women who have questionable morals and adulterous women who weep on his feet. It's not filled with Pharisees and high priests and kings like King Herod. The intimate knowledge of who God is and 
His love and the truth of the gospel is revealed to infants. It's not new. It's seen throughout all redemptive history. God rejects the wise and strong and chooses the foolish and weak to display his glory and his power to the world. If God revealed himself to the the intellectual elite, to the politically strong, to the physically uh, able, then then it would be up to us, right? It would be to our glory. It would show our great efforts in coming to know God. But the fact he reveals it to babies displays the power of God and not the power of men. You think of Psalm 8, for example. In Psalm 8, verse 2, it says that God stills enemies, silences them. How? Out of the mouth of babes. How does God win his victories? Not by sending massive conquering armies, not by sending a gigantic king, not by sending some impressive warrior, but by using the mouths of babes to still enemies. Psalm chapter 119 verse 130 claims that God gives wisdom to the simple, not to the complex, not to the self-wise, not to the doctors of the world, but to the simple, those who know they need his wisdom. And then we get to 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, in which Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. My friends, the fact that we know God proves that God is strong and that he is wise. It doesn't prove that we are strong and that we are wise. It proves that he is strong and he is wise. The fact that we, sinners, former adulterers, former addicts, people who have deep, dark secrets and sins and guilt, shameful past, painful memories, the fact that we... The runt of the righteous lot. The fact that we know God. People with filthy rags as righteousness know God. Is a sign that God is powerful to save. And that it is his wisdom that we depend on, not ours. So Jesus, that's just all in Jesus' prayer. It's all based on God's gracious will. To hide it from the wise and understanding. To keep it back from the strong. And to give it to babies. To give it to infants. To give it to people who understand their helplessness. And their dependency upon God. And when infants like us are given knowledge of the infinite God. God is glorified. Now. Having, Jesus, having finished his prayer. Jesus now turns again to speak to the crowds. He, he's spoken to God, and he thanked God, and, and the, the whole crowd's hearing this. And now Jesus speaks to the crowd, and here's what he says. All things have been handed over by me, by my, to me by my Father. Now listen to this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's pretty exclusivistic, isn't it? I mean, he's claiming here that the only one that knows him is the Father, and he's the only one that knows the Son. And by the way, he has all authority because everything has been handed over to him. And whoever knows the Father knows the Father only because Jesus has chosen to reveal him. It's an exclusivistic claim. On the one hand, it shows that Jesus and the Father share an intimate relationship that is indivisible. They cannot be broken apart. But on the other hand, it shows that you cannot have knowledge of the Father. You cannot know God 
without first knowing God's Son. You cannot have God the Father unless you have Jesus. My friends, we live in a very pluralistic age that likes lots of options. We like to change the menu, so to speak, and switch it up. Can I have it with, uh, can I have it with fruit instead of fries in a way that God never intended, right? <laughs> but when it comes to the gospel, there are no options. There's one. To have knowledge of God, you have to know the Son. There's no other way. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one that can come to the Father. How? Except by me. That's it. Exclusivistic. This reality expresses a fundamental truth about Jesus' work and mission. He himself is knowledge of God. He himself is knowledge of God. You know Jesus. You know God. The author of Hebrews put it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, how has he spoken to us? He has spoken to us by his Son. That's it. Revelation complete. There is no other revelation that has come after the Son. He is the full culmination of it all, the climax. He's, He's it. He's the conclusion. Know God, you know the Son. Know God, you know the Son. Know the Son, and you know God. That's what the message of Jesus is. God reveals himself in Jesus. And so in order to know God, we must know Jesus. Now, all this is built up, okay? The, the first two propositions, that God revealed the truth about Jesus to infants, and the second proposition, which is Jesus himself is the way to know God, all this builds up to this invitation. So everything we've just said is building up to this climax that I think is now the pinnacle of what Jesus is saying. Look at uh, verse 28 and 29. Here's what Jesus says. I just... Just set the tone in your minds. You have just heard Jesus waylay Chorazin and Bethsaida. You've just heard him as the Pharisees are gasping because they're offended that he has just pronounced judgment and said it would be better for Sodom than it would be for them. Because had Sodom seen Jesus and what Jesus said, they would have repented. Okay? So Jesus just waylaid the religious elite. All these doctors of theology, just jaw drops and pricked in their hearts. And then Jesus turns to runts like you and me. And here's what he says. Come to me. I don't know if he was yelling. I'm sure he said it in such a way that everybody could hear it. But one thing I'm certain of, there's such a warmth in even reading these words. That we can just hear Jesus beckoning us, right? Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus' words give a two-part call. The first part is to come. The second part is to take up and learn. And still more, with each one of these parts of the call, we find out that there's a certain posture 
that we must come with, if that makes sense. These, these uh, calls, this invitation comes with a certain postle, posture of a disciple. The first posture required of disciples is simply this. Humble depe- dependence. Humble dependence. Self-sufficient people do not come to Christ on their own. The first posture of being a disciple is humble dependence. Jesus says, come. His invitation makes sense. I mean, after all, he just said that I am the way to know the Father. No one knows the Father except me and the ones that I reveal to him. So it, it makes sense that he's just leveled this truth that he's the way to know God. And now he says, come. I've got the water come drink. I've got the food, come eat. I've got the life, come Lazarus, walk out of the tomb. This is Jesus giving the invitation, but it is explicitly given to all who labor and are heavy laden. He doesn't just say, come to me all. He adds on to it. Come to me all who are heavy, or who labor and are heavy laden. There's a prerequisite that we understand and accept that we are heavily burdened and need Jesus to lift that burden. My friends, discipleship is one of the only places in the world that it is actually safe and good and right to admit that you are over your head. Is one of the few places that it is right and good and safe and noble and righteous to admit that you have burdens in life that are too heavy for you to carry. The prerequisite of being a disciple is acknowledging we carry burdens. For some of us, it is guilt. For some of us, it is shame. For some of us, it is fear. Because of the fall, not one of us is exempt from bearing the burdens of sin, from bearing the effects of sin. The reality is, though, that it is only those who acknowledge and realize and confess their burden and feel the weight of their weariness that actually find rest. It's when we realize that we are insufficient to carry the burdens of life on our own, and we come and realize that Jesus is sufficient to carry them. That's the prerequisite posture. It's a posture that confesses my weakness, my inability, and his sufficiency and strength. It admits my need for rest. I just wonder, in the stillness of our hearts, just this morning, as we're thinking about it, I don't don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to stand up. I just want to think, how many of you know your need for rest? You put on a brave face, you think everything is, you say everything is fine. Have you taken it to Jesus and just said, Jesus, I need rest? When was the last time you just breathed out, God, (laughs) I've been praying for you to help me to learn how to get through this. Now I'm just praying for you to take the burden because I can't get through it. I've been asking you to teach me how to carry this, how to bear with it. How to, how to survive because of it or despite it. But now I'm just asking you to take it, to carry it. I'm coming to you in this posture knowing that it's too heavy for me. 
My friends, sometimes, for some reason, in the Christian church, we get this idea that we have to pretend that we're bearing with it all. But true, healthy, mature discipleship is a confession that we can't bear it at all. That we need Jesus to lift it up. That we need Jesus to give us, give us rest. That we are weary and broken people. Motherhood is too big for you. Fatherhood is too heavy for you. Your fears, your shame, your guilt, your pride, it is all heavier than you can carry. Your pain, your suffering. When was the last time we said, give me rest? And what's rest? Rest is not just temporary refreshment. It's not, Jesus, I'm coming in for a pit stop. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. It's not momentary relaxation. It's not a second breath of fresh air. Rest in the way that Jesus uses it is renewal and restoration. It's coming back to a relationship with God in the way that it was intended. The, the time that we see rest in the Bible, it begins with Genesis 1 and 2, where mankind is in Eden with God and they rest with God, where there's this enjoyment of God. An enjoyment of all of God's sovereign works. We lost that because of the fall. We lost the ability to enjoy God. We lost the ability to have a relationship with God. To to stand in God's presence and just go. (sighs) We lost that. And now here's Jesus. Offering it back. Jesus is the way. That we come to attain and one day fully achieve the rest with God that we were made to have in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the way that we are able to enjoy God in the way we were meant to do. The promise is given to all who labor and heavy laden. Are you someone who feels the heaviness of life? Do you recognize your own weariness? Do you see your own struggle, your own pain? Do you have all kinds of memories and guilts and fears that weigh heavy on your mind? Are you someone that wants desperately to be a humble person, but you see that pride just keeps knocking you down and knocking you back? Are you someone that just groans inside? You find yourself talking to yourself in the car because you don't really know who to talk to or what to say? Do you have arguments in secret, pretending that you re- that person that you're really angry at from years ago is there and now you're waylaying them with your, with your argument, with your debate? Are you someone that's just kind of made it through this week? Maybe you're potty training. That's us. Yes. And you really just want to throw up in your, your hands, throw up in your hands, and throw up your hands. Those two things are actually the same, believe it or not. And just give it up and say, I'm tired. You know, just to, to live a faithful Christian life and just dealing with body training is hard. Seriously. But then you add in things to it like painful relationships, old divorces. Lost loved ones, shattered dreams, 
That's far worse than potty training. If I can barely be, or if I cannot at all hope to be a faithful Christian and deal with a potty training child, then what hope do I have to deal with chronic illness? To deal with shattered dreams of a life that could have been? To deal with hurt friendships, bad memories? My friends, come to Jesus. Admit your need. Listen to him whisper. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Second posture of a true disciple is humble submission. So the first one, Jesus says, come. That's the first command that we're given. Now we get to the second part of the command. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says the promise again. Here's another promise of rest. Well, what's a yoke? What's the yoke he wants us to take up? There are different kinds of yokes in Scripture. Uh, for example, there's, there was an animal yoke. That's what you put on your oxen and you sent them loose to go plow the fields. And so there's that kind of yoke. There's also human yokes. We, uh, archaeology has found uh, these yokes that humans made to help kind of bear burdens, right? To, the, things are just heavy. How many of you have ever grown up on a farm, had to water, water animals? Okay. Um, I, had, uh, I had about six five-gallon buckets worth of watering to do when I was a kid. And I had somehow uh, jerry-rigged this um, uh, PVC pipe yoke to carry three at a time. So I carry three at a time on my neck and two by hand, right? Um, my dad thought I was crazy, but I was just trying to get done so I could go play, right? Um, so that's, that's the kind of yoke in mind. It's this yoke that's there not to take away your burden, but to make the burden easier, if that makes sense, to make it a little more bearable. Just to carry six five-gallon buckets all at once is impossible. But having a yoke makes it more attainable. I won't say I've made it every time, but I made it most of the time. The invitation to take up his yoke is an invitation to take him on as our master. Does that make sense? It's, it's an invitation to take him on as our master, to submit to his way of living, to his way of doing life, knowing that life is too heavy for ourselves, knowing that we can't carry it on our own. It's too cumbersome. It's too uncomfortable so that we need Jesus. It's, a, it's, a, it's an admission that we need to be led. We, we make poor masters for ourselves. When we are the kings over our own lives, we do what's right in our own eyes, and things go awire, don't they? Then he also go, calls us to learn from him. It's a call to make him our teacher. This, of course, humbles a, it requires a humble confession that we need to be educated, that we do not know how to live a life that honors God, that we do not know how to attain righteousness. We don't know God's will on our own. So when we come to him to learn from him, we come to him so that he will teach us what to do, how we should love a difficult spouse. Don't look, don't look over. How to love a difficult spouse. How to be patient with temperamental children. It's a good, good application there, Christine. Kiss, kiss him. Just give him a kiss. It teaches us how to turn from our addictions and to cling to God alone. My friends, discipleship is not about mastering life. 
mastering righteousness. An immense amount of Bible knowledge does not equal discipleship. Discipleship and being a disciple is more like the kindergarten kid that you dropped off in class, listening to every word that the teacher says because they know they need to learn. They can't read the book on their own. They need help. They can't solve the math problem on their own. They need help. Sometimes they can't even make friends on their own. They need a mediator who's going to be there to teach them how to, how to live well and not hit each other in the face. My friends, that is our posture as disciples, is that we all, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter how many degrees we accumulate, no matter how many GDI classes we accomplish, that we know we have more to learn. And that's going to be true, guess what? For all eternity. Learn from me, is what he says. It's ongoing, it's present tense. That means every day... You wake up, there's a fresh, the command, learn from me. And you're driving down I-35 and you get cut off, learn from him. When you're cleaning up the mess that your two-year-old just made again, learn from him. When you're doing the dishes, learn from him. It's an ongoing, continual, constant, present command. Learn. Understand that there's something to learn from him at every single case. That is the posture that even right now in this, I have not made it. That in my own discipleship, in all the years, the 10 years of learning and following and, and, and trying hard. I've been following him a little bit longer than that. But all these years of learning and following that I still have much, much more to learn. And that even when I am dead... I will begin eternity where I will see my teacher face to face. I'll have perfect knowledge, but I'll still have a perfect teacher to walk through all eternity with. The knowledge of the depth of God is vast. We're just beginning. Most of us might think that we might be in middle school or high school when it comes to knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of God, the way He works. My friends, I hate to tell you this. You haven't even made it to preschool yet. We know a lot, sure. We only know what we've been told, and even that we know imperfectly. We see in a glass darkly. We're asking and waiting for God to pull back the veil so our eyes can see perfectly. But my friends, how amazing would it be if every Christian walked around as if they didn't have all knowledge in the world? How amazing would it be if we got together in life groups and we just openly confess, you know, I'm not sure, I don't know. How many of us would be willing to just confess and say, I need help? I don't know how to honor God in this situation. I need to learn. I'm 97 years old, and I still need to understand how to love God in, 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 in chronic pain. Now, here's a question, though, worth asking. Jesus has just given this invitation. Come to me, take up my yoke, okay? Let me be your master. And then the second invitation, learn from me, which is let me be your teacher. 
What makes him a worthy master and teacher? Why not submit to other masters and teachers? Other rabbis, teachers like the Pharisees, they offered yokes as well. So what makes better, Jesus a better master and teacher than these amazing teachers of the law, these educated and these elite? Well, to be sure, they offered their yokes, but their yokes, their requirements of discipleship, their standards, did not make the load any lighter. In fact, their yokes made the load heavier. Listen to Matthew 23, 4. Jesus warns about the Pharisees, saying, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift them with a finger. My friends, Jesus has just described every other master teacher in existence. They heap up burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on your shoulders, but they do not lift one finger to help. Jesus is a different kind of master and teacher, though. First, he says in verse 29 that he is gentle and lowly of heart. In other words, he is a patient teacher who does not beat, scold, or shame his students. The contrast could not be greater. The world's a terrifying master. How many of us have felt our hands and our backs and our heads smacked more than once by the teacher world? How many of us have been left out in the cold to learn our lesson? Scolded, skinned, alive, broken, shamed, put up in front of the rest of the class and mocked. The world is a is an ungracious teacher. It takes joy in beating us when we make a mistake. But Jesus is different. He said, of him it said, a bruised reed he will not break. Have you ever seen a bruised reed? It's one of those reeds that has just kind of fallen over. It's just about to fly off, fly away because it's broken. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not put out. My friends, if a bruised reed he will not break, how much more can a broken, repentant sinner find his hands to be gentle? That's the point. Jesus is gentle. When we stumble, he picks us up. When we turn aside, he lovingly draws us back. When we have no answers, he offers wisdom. He does not condemn, but instead he cleanses us of sin. Second, Jesus is a worthy master and teacher because he gives what no one else can. The first part of the call, he promised rest to those who come to him, and he repeats the promise again in verse 29. And you will find rest of souls, rest for your souls. It's the deepest, best, most restful rest you can have. It's not just peace of mind like a life insurance policy can give you. It's peace of soul, an eternal rest that reaches you down to your very core. It's this foundation that keeps you from shaking when everything else around you is shaking. Jesus can give what no one else can. It's that kind of rest. It comes only from Jesus. Now, the obvious question would be, if this is the kind of master teacher we have who can give us this kind of rest... Why not come to him as our master and teacher? Why do we go to all these other masters and teachers? Why not stick with him? 
But there's a third way that he's a different kind of master and teacher. Jesus' yoke, contrasting the yoke of the law and all the other heavy yokes of the masters of the world, is easy and his burden is light. Every other master of the world has a heavy yoke for you to bear. Uh, let's just walk through them. The, the, the Pharisees, for example, put themselves and their disciples under the yoke of Lord Law. Lord Law is great. He's very attractive, very tall. You just want to be his disciple. And yet he lays his burden down on you, and no human, no shoulder ever in human existence has ever been able to bear his load. He has killed many a servants and slaves under the load that he gives. Today we have master money. He makes us work ceaselessly to keep his affection. Lord fame. He makes us keep up with all the fads, all the new clothing, and all the hip things, the Twitter and the Facebook, and makes us keep going endlessly, like the, the, the Facebook likes and the Instagram followers and the, the people who know our names and know what we've done. He keeps us going on and on and yet still eventually forgets us. Prince Prosperity treats life like a game of hide and seek. All of his servants go seeking for him and he hides. King accomplishment, once more. That's his M.O. You bring him degrees, he wants more. You bring him rewards, he wants more. You bring him distinguished, distinguished honors, and you bring him all these things, and yet he wants more, and he wants more, and he wants more. Princess Pleasure is a fat lady who doesn't find satisfaction. You feed her, and you feed her, and you feed her, and she still wants more. How many of us have had any one of those lords and masters in our life and could say that's true? Then there's the tyrant fear. He takes joy in torturing us. He's one of the masters that doesn't mind kicking us awake at night to make us serve him. He, he takes particular pre- pleasure in watching you squirm underneath his burden. He likes to watch you fall. There's Prince Proud. You try to come to him and he stands even taller than you. He says, try to reach it to my height and he gets taller and he gets taller and he gets bigger. And you can never attain the height of Prince Proud because he is the tallest in all the land. And so you try as you might, you can just never reach the pinnacle of where Prince Pride is. Now, with all these masters, there's two things in common. Number one, they all come with heavy burdens. And number two, none of them can give us rest. My friends, I'm going to venture to say there's many of you like me who have had these masters as a former king or lord in your life. There's some of you who have been tempted to go back to their lordship and to their mastery. Here's why you shouldn't. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, we're compelled to ask, what makes his burden light? What makes his yoke easy in comparison to all these other yokes that we've had in the past? And here's the gospel truth. Jesus' yoke is light because he is the only master who bears the burden for us. 
To be sure, being a Christian and being a disciple of Christ means that we will try to live according to a certain standard of holiness and obedience, and yet Jesus does not make us bear that burden on our our shoulders alone. It is he who is the Lamb of God, he who bore the sins of the world away, not me. His shoulders took my sin. His shoulders took my cross. He says, take my yoke because it's easy. And then he yokes himself to my crucifixion. Hauling my execution up the hill. Bearing condemnation he knows I could not bear. Jesus is a better master because no other master will lift a finger to help you carry the load. They will load on and they will load on. Fear, regret, pride, judgment, anger, on and on it goes. They load you down and they don't lift you up. They'd rather you be killed underneath the heaviness of their yoke and Jesus yet dies. In the end, Jesus' invitation to come to take up his yoke and learn from him is an invitation to trust him with everything. The only requirement, the only posture required of us is that we come with dependence and humble submission. That we come in dependence, that's the first command. Second, that we come in submission, that's take up yoke and learn from me. Now, we'll come to our close here. Thinking of discipleship as a school and as ourselves, disciples, as students, is helpful on many levels. First, it leads us to confess our need to learn. We've hammered that one to death, haven't we? Every single one of us must, as a sign of maturity of discipleship, acknowledge the fact that we have yet still much, much, much more to learn. That the ocean of God's grace and God's greatness and God's majesty goes far deeper than we can ever imagine. There's more lessons to learn, more sins to mortify, more pride to kill. We can yet go lower in our humility. More love to give to everyone. There's still more people that need to know the love of Christ. Second, the analogy also draws our attention to the gracious gracious teacher. My hope today is that whatever you're going through, whatever you've been through, whether it's been a difficult week as a mother whether it's been a very tough and trying week as a worker somewhere, you've got your boss cramming in more tasks on you, if it's someone who's struggling under the fear of losing a loved one, maybe you're someone who's feeling as if your whole life is shattered. My hope is that Jesus' invitation has drawn your eyes to him. He is a good teacher. He is the good master. Saying comments like, I'm sure Jesus is rolling his eyes and saying, why haven't you got it now? Could not be further from the truth. Jesus is a sympathetic teacher. He knows your weaknesses better than you do. He knows your spiritual ADD better than you do. He knows how dyslexic you can become when it comes to the truths of God. How you can get it all jumbled up and mixed up. And yet he still patiently loves. And he still patiently says, come and learn from me. Finally, seeing ourselves as students enrolled in the school of Christ also changes our perspective of life. We are all in classrooms right now. 
this is not a classroom. This is a worship center. But you are in a classroom. You might be suffering. You might be in some kind of pain and in struggle. You might go to the hospital this week. You might take a child to the hospital this week. You might go to the graveyard to bury a loved one this week. You will go to the conference room where the boss will say, well, we've had to make some cutbacks. You will get a phone call from a loved one who will want you to fix the problem, but you don't know how. In all of those things, these are classrooms in which you will learn the same lesson over and over again. You ready for it? This is the lesson. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Nothing is wasted. Even though all of life's problems and pains, we are brought to a deeper knowledge of his love, his grace, and the surety of his promises. The classroom of life teaches us over and over and over again, Jesus is enough. My friends, to be a disciple at Grace Church is to be a student that acknowledges, recognizes, basks in, glories in the fact that we need to learn more and more and more that Jesus is enough. His grace is enough. His love is enough. So I pray that as we continue in this series of discipleship at Grace, that we will all come to humbly understand ourselves as students. And not just for a little while, because we don't graduate from the school of Christ. But as lifelong, eternal students of a great master and teacher, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will help humble us, help us have the posture of students. God, that we will be dependent and submissive. Lord, I pray for people here that are heavy laden, who labor, who are burdened under pains and struggles. And God, I pray that you will help us. Father, I pray this in your son's name. Amen.